right, once again, good morning. Good to see everybody. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter 1? If you're new with us, welcome. Just to kind of give you a little heads up, we uh, here at Calvary have begun a study in Paul's letter to the Philippians, looking at its theme of joy topically. And by that I mean we have isolated every place in the epistle where the words joy and rejoice appear, studying each passage to determine the context in which Paul was using the concept of joy, and then placing each reference under a specific heading. These headings will become the main points that we want to build this series around. So far, we've looked at joy in fellowship, chapter 1, verses 3 to 6, and then joy in proclaiming the gospel, verses 12 to 18. And this morning, we are uh, continuing looking at our third main point, joy of faith, which really appears in verse 25, but I want you to back up to verse 19, where Paul says, For I know that this will soon turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with, all, uh, with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. So as we said last time, here in verse 25, Paul mentions joy again, but this time he connects it to faith. And by talking about the joy of faith, Paul is talking about the joy that comes from having faith or even the joy that comes from exercising faith. As we said last time, the word faith appears 389 times in the New King James Version of the Bible, the word believe, about 250, it's 249. Uh, but then you have words believing and believes and things like that. So uh, faith is a very important subject in the Bible. In fact, it's so important that it's talked about in every book of the Bible from Genesis through Revelation. The Bible says without faith it's impossible to please God. It tells us that salvation comes by grace through faith. It also says that once we are saved, the just shall live by faith. So, needless to say, the subject of faith is a rather large and important one. Uh, in fact, it is not an overstatement to say that your Christian life will rise and fall on whether your concept of biblical faith is right or wrong. And I say that because everything God has for us in the way of grace Think of grace as God's enablements and blessings, okay? Everything God has for us 
in the way of grace, which is power to walk with him, to serve him, power to grow and bear and be fruitful as believers in Christ. All of that comes as a gift from God, but a gift that has to be received from him by faith. If it's going to benefit our walk, our lives, and so on. Even as Jesus said, according to your faith, let it be done unto you. Now, with that in mind, it's critical that we understand what biblical faith is, if we're going to understand the joy that is associated with it. Last week, we talked more about what biblical faith is not, because there's a lot of misconceptions out there. We dealt with some of them. We started to look at what biblical faith is, but we had to stop because we ran out of time. So today, I'd like to just kind of revisit that from the beginning. Uh, and talk about what biblical faith is. There are four kinds of faith the Bible talks about. There is the shield of faith, the gift of faith, saving faith, and then practical or everyday faith. Now, this morning I want to look at the shield of faith, and that comes out of, of course, uh, Ephesians 6. Let me just read to you verse 16, where Paul said, Above all, the Greek is, in addition to all, uh, taking the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. The shield of faith, guys, as you already know, is one of the six pieces of armor that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6 that a Christian should put on every day before going out into the world to do battle with the devil and his demonic armies. We face spiritual warfare every day of our lives. We don't realize it, but it's out there. It takes different forms. The word shield, the word shield here in the Greek is thurion, which wasn't the small round shield that most of us are familiar with. That smaller shield measured about two feet in diameter. It had leather straps on the back through which the Roman soldier put his forearm, and then it was used, you know, it was used to defend himself in close combat with uh, an enemy. So that shield was used primarily in, in um, hand-to-hand combat situations or close combat uh, situations. In contrast, the Thurion was a large shield. They usually measured about four and a half feet long, in other words, vertically speaking. It measured about two feet wide and roughly two inches thick. It was made of wood, obviously hardwood, and covered with tough leather that had been heavily oiled to help deflect incoming arrows. Now, the soldiers who carried these shields were in the front lines of battle. And that's why Paul used Thurion to describe the shield of faith, because we are all in the front lines of battle with the enemy. All right. One other piece of information about this Roman shield that might be helpful to understand The edges of these shields were made in such a way so that the entire line of soldiers could interlock their shields together, if you can imagine that, and thus march at the enemy like one solid wall. This suggests, of course, that faith united is faith strong and victorious. And that's why we are admonished in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. We need each other. We need each other. When people start thinking, I can make it. I'll just stay and watch it on live stream. 
I don't need to be there. You are playing into the devil's hands. He always tries to isolate before he really attacks in a very heavy way. He wants you separated from the body of Christ. There is strength in numbers, and we come together, our united faith in our Savior makes us very, very strong, at, well, against the gates of hell, uh, excuse me, against the church, I should say, the gates of hell will not prevail, but only if we're united. Now, this shield would, as you can imagine, completely protect the soldier against spears, arrows, and what Paul refers to here as fiery darts. These were arrows or spears uh, dipped in pitch of some kind, or some other flammable material set on fire and then launched at enemy armies. Without this large shield that protected the soldier's entire body, he would be vulnerable to these flaming missiles. Uh, yet when held in front of him, these arrows would lodge safely in his shield and be extinguished. Needless to say, no frontline soldier ever went out to battle without his Thurion shield. Now, Paul calls our shield the Thurion, or the shield of faith. The shield of faith, guys, is totally sufficient in its ability to protect us against whatever the devil sends our way, whatever attacks he sends our way. How, how do we know it's completely sufficient? Because Paul says, he tells us that by taking up our shield of faith, we will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. The devil can't fire one shot at a Christian that the shield of faith can't protect them from. Now, you might be thinking, what do these fiery darts of Satan represent? Well, there's uh, varying uh, explanations or interpretations. Uh, you can read commentaries, and they've a lot of guys have and gals have different takes on this. Um, some think these fiery darts refer to various temptations that promote what Paul calls in Galatians 5, verses 19 to 21, the works of the flesh. And he named some of them, adultery, fornication, moral uncleanness, hatred, drunkenness, jealousies, violent outbursts, and even murder. The idea is these flaming, uh, uh, fiery darts, many believe, are temptations designed to, listen, inflame the flesh, and thereby get us to sin in some way. Others think they refer to Satan attacking us emotionally, emotionally, in the area of depression, anxiety, worry, fear, anger, and so on. Author and pastor Ray Stedman said, and I quote, what are these flaming arrows that Paul speaks of? The devil's arrows come in many forms, including blue, blue moods of depression, dark nights of fear, gray days of doubt, and more. Sometimes those arrows come in the form of evil thoughts, and they, are and they occasionally come at the most unwelcome and congruous times. We may be reading the Bible or on our knees in prayer or thinking about something else entirely when suddenly a filthy, lewd, or blasphemous thought comes to mind. Where did that thought come from, we wonder. We don't need to wonder at all. It is a fiery arrow of the devil, and we should recognize it as such, end quote. Look, Paul doesn't get specific, so we can't get dogmatic. 
about what these darts are all about. However, since he calls this shield faith and tells us that if we take it up daily, it will protect us from these satanic missiles by neutralizing their effectiveness in our lives. And since, guys, the antithesis of faith is doubt, I'm wondering if that is primarily what Paul had in mind that primarily Paul is likening demonic doubts to fiery darts, doubts, doubts about God's love for us, doubts about his promises to us, whether we can trust them or not, or lean on them or not, uh, doubts about his goodness, doubts about his word in general. I mean, we're talking about spiritual warfare. Isn't that what Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 17 is all about? I mean, that's, that's where Paul talked about, take up the shield of faith. The idea is that we're talking about spiritual warfare, and the quickest way for the devil to neutralize your effectiveness for God is to get you to doubt God, to doubt God, to try to turn him into an adversary instead of an ally. Isn't that what he did with the first couple on the face of the earth that he attacked with, with temptation? Didn't he try to sow Adam and Eve, I'm speaking of, in case you're wondering what you're talking about. Hopefully you're not wondering that. The very first couple on the face of the earth, Adam and Eve. The very first temptation, Satan took the form of a serpent and he tempted Adam and Eve. And basically the temptation was, can you really trust God? Did God really say that? Maybe he said that because he wanted you to eat that forbidden fruit because, you know, he knows that your eyes will be open and you become like him, like God, and he doesn't want the competition. Oh, really? Adam and Eve started to think, well, maybe God isn't so good. Maybe he's trying to keep us from something good. And that's how the devil always works. Now, if this is true, and these missiles from hell, fiery darts, are demonic doubts directed at us to try to get us to question the goodness and the love and the faithfulness of God in our lives, then the only thing that will counteract them is faith, is faith. Again, let me read you something Ray Stedman said. Uh, one more quote from him. He said, and I quote, Have you learned to take up the shield of faith when doubts come? It means saying to yourself, Christ is the truth. He is reality. I have been convinced of his reality many times over. I have committed myself to Christ because I have been persuaded that he is the way, the truth, and the life. So I reject this thought that Christianity is a hoax. Uh, I will continue to act in faith despite my feelings of doubt. Have you learned to take up the shield of faith when feelings of unworthiness come? It means saying to yourself, yes, I failed God. But his promise to me is that he always accepts me. All of the great men and women of the Bible have failed God from time to time, yet God still used them, and I know he will use me. Christ is my righteousness. I am one with him, and his righteousness covers me. Nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. Have you learned to take up the shield of faith when depression and anxiety come? It means saying to yourself, feelings are not facts. Feelings come and go, but the truth of God is forever. I refuse to believe the lie of, of Satan. With the Lord Jesus Christ as my shield, I am going to cling to my faith despite my feelings. Have you learned to take up the shield of faith when evil thoughts arise? It means saying to yourself, these evil thoughts are not my thoughts, 
They came into my mind as fiery arrows from the devil. I do not want these thoughts. I reject them. Lord Jesus, fill my mind with your thoughts. Drive everything out of my mind but what you want me to think. This is what the Bible calls resisting the devil. See James 4, verse 7. This is the shield of faith. Refuse to believe the lie of the devil. Take refuge in the truth of God. When you resist the devils, says James, he will flee from you. Resist those thoughts whenever they come your way. Refuse to yield your position. And sooner or later, those thoughts will clear up. Your feelings will change. The attacks will cease, end quote. Guys, uh, as we kind of get into last week, when Paul said, take up the shield of faith, he isn't saying that faith in and of itself will protect you from the devil or any other problem. We touched on this last time. In fact, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, God said to Abraham, Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. In Psalm 18, verse 30, the psalmist said, The Lord is a shield to all who put their trust in him. When Paul speaks of taking up the shield of faith, it means my faith is nothing. Listen to me. My faith is nothing except what it puts in front of me, and that is God himself. He's the only one who can be my shield, not really my faith. Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. I'm sure you know this, but let me say it. Faith alone will do, you, will do nothing for you. Faith in Jesus will do everything for you. That's why we are admonished in Hebrews 12, verse 2. Keep looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Again, guys, faith is not a power we can use to play God, as some teach. Faith is simple childlike trust in God, in his power, in his promises, and ultimately, in his person, his character. He is trustworthy. He has proven that over and over again. Let me transition into a story. And from that, give you a further teaching. About 15 years ago, we had a young couple in the church. Uh, his name was John. Her, her name was Sharice. And um, after a while, they <clears throat> moved to Arizona to be closer to her family. And when they moved out there, they started working with a ministry uh, on a Native American reservation to Native American young people who had accepted Christ and reaching out to those in the hopes that more would accept Christ. Well, Sharice was one day coming home from a um, young Christian woman's retreat, and she was driving a 15-passenger uh, van. And... Um, going down the highway, I'm assuming 65, 70 miles an hour, when suddenly a semi that was driving next to them suddenly swerved into her lane, hitting the van, sending it tumbling down the highway at 70 miles an hour. She wasn't wearing her seatbelt, and she was thrown out the window and killed instantly. But miraculously, none of the other girls were seriously injured. I received a phone call from the family if I could come out and do her eulogy service, which I did. But that experience God used to put into my heart to do a message 
on how faith can remain strong. I mean, she was a young mom, loved the Lord, two very small children. God led me to do a message on how our faith can remain strong when we're confronted by adversity, tragedy, or any other fiery dart that the devil fires at us to get us to doubt the love and the character of God. And so I began that message with, uh, by presenting various real-life, I say stories, but they're headlines I read that led to stories. But I'd seen these over the years, just different things in the newspapers, on TV. And let me just tell you how I started this message. A bus taking a church group to a ski resort. These were all true stories. A bus taking a church group to a ski resort overturns, injuring many and leaving one young woman permanently paralyzed. A child crossing the street is struck and killed by a drunk driver. A Christian girl is abducted by two men. Though she shares Jesus with them and pleads for mercy, she is brutally raped and murdered. A missionary is killed by the tribe he came to serve after only two weeks of ministry. A young father working a second job as a convenience store clerk is killed by a teenager on drugs who holds up the store. And that launched into the message where I said, you know, these are a few of the stories we hear almost every day on TV, reading the papers or whatever online news service you get your news from. Tragedies that touch every one of us in one form or another, leaving people broken, grieving, with one question burning in their hearts, why did this happen? If God is so good and so loving, how could he allow these kinds of terrible things to happen to decent people made in his image, many of them having received Christ and are now or were at that time his children? How could he have allowed this? How can he continue to allow it? Guys, if we could um, see a direct relationship between our sufferings and our sins, right? Between, or a contradiction or a connection, I should say, between our tragedies and our transgressions, then maybe we could begin to understand the whys of our adversities. I deserve it. I mean, this happened to me because I did this, and I did something against what God said. But when tragedy strikes, and there seems to be no reason for it, no correlation with sin, we are often left to feel that God has mistreated us, that he is maybe unjust in his dealings with us and this often leads to feelings of fear anger even bitterness towards this god we thought we knew as a god of love and compassion now listen as christians we do believe in a loving all-powerful god who is in control of this universe a god who claims that he is good and has our best interests at heart but if that is true, then why do so many bad things happen to those who love him, those who belong to him? Before we go any farther, let me just say this. A very wise man once said, if God was small enough to understand, he wouldn't be big enough to worship. And I'll have you read Isaiah. Uh, chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, on your own. Guys, adversities can make us bitter or better, depending on how we approach and handle them. I know one thing, they can certainly damage and even destroy our faith if we let them. 
So often we use the shield of faith to protect us against the devil's attacks on, listen, the love and character of God, that's true, but also on our faith in God, how can we use the shield of faith to protect us so that our relationship with God isn't damaged or destroyed when the devil comes attacking? In this regard, your faith in God that you shield yourself with. Let me say it again. In this regard, your faith in God that you shield yourself with has to be made up of three critically important beliefs. They are a shield of faith. I'm not saying it's the only definition or the only explanation. I know this. This is where the shield of faith starts that we're talking about. Are you ready? Three things that you have to know and you got to know that you know that you know them. Because if you don't know them, if you don't have all three nailed down, the devil's going to get you. His fiery darts are going to wound and maybe in some respects destroy your faith. Here they are. First of all, and if you're looking for something that's going to be like a practical application. Oh, I can use that. These are more div these are divine truths. All right, these are what practical things come out of. First of all, you must believe that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. I have to believe that not only is God aware of everything that touches my life, He is an absolute control of everything that touches my life this means that he is all-powerful which the theologians call omnipotent he's omnipotent all-powerful but he is all-powerful when it comes to the circumstances of my life i have to believe that and that nothing can happen to me except what god allows for his purposes now you read the book of job you, you know, you could at least chapters one and two. And you'll see that the devil had to get permission to do everything he hit, hit Job with. Nothing happens to us by accident, by chance. Nothing happens to us because God is not strong enough to keep them from happening. That was the premise of the very popular book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, written by Rabbi Harold Kushner, it shot the title. He nailed it with the title. He struck a nerve. Everybody wants to know why bad things happen to good people. And so it shot up to the top of the New York Times bestseller list years ago where it stayed for I don't know how long. It was over a year, I think. His conclusion, why bad things happen to good people, it's not that God's a bad God. He's just not strong enough to keep bad things from happening to good people. I'll just throw that out there because we know that's ridiculous. Our God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. Now listen to me. I believe everything, well, let me read Romans 8.28, which you guys know so well, where Paul said, and we know, that all things, not most or many, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called, Christians according to his purposes. Let me just give you this little caveat, though. 
That assumes you're walking with God. Not perfect, but that you're sincere in your walk with God. That you're not living in open rebellion and sin. Because a lot of bad stuff happens to us when we're not walking with God. And we can't run to Romans 8, 28. Well, here it is right here, though. God's using it for good. Um, see, that, that's the problem when we try to yank scriptures out of context. The way of the transgressor is what? Blessed? Hard. The way of the transgressor is hard, and God wants it that way. Because hopefully your sins will beat you up to the point where you come back to him. But we know that as children of God, all things are working together for our ultimate good. Because God loves us, and God wants to use and bless us. But notice, it doesn't say we see all things work together for good. It says we know it, how? By faith. And that's the Greek word there, know. It's a word that intuitively, we know it because of our faith. What is our faith built on? Faith comes by hearing and hearing what? How? By the word of God. Our faith is built on the word of God. Okay, God's word tells us that... Um, Everything in our lives is working according to God's plan for our lives, bringing us to the place he has ordained for us before the foundation of the world where he can bless us and use us and ultimately reward us in heaven someday, right? Um, but that's what we're told in God's word. Now listen to me. The fact that God is sovereign, listen, that he can do whatever he wants because he's all-powerful. Nobody's going to challenge him. The fact that God is sovereign wouldn't comfort me in times of difficulty or adversity if I didn't believe the second truth, that God loves me. That God loves me. You see, if God was all-powerful but a cruel despot, that wouldn't give me any comfort. It would terrify me. Not only is he cruel, but he's all-powerful. He's got all the power he needs to mess me up to the max. Or do away with me altogether. But the fact that God is all-powerful and at the same time all-loving. The theologians say omnibenevolent. He's omnipotent and he's also omnibenevolent. All-powerful and all-loving. That's a tremendous comfort to me. Tremendous comfort to me. Look, God's love is expressed throughout the pages of Scripture from Genesis 1-1 through Revelation 22, 21, all the way through. One of the ones I really love is Romans 5, verse 8, where Paul said, But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. As children of God, the devil wants you to doubt God's love. Because we blow it. We're not, we don't measure up all the time. We know, look, we can come to church and put on this facade, and we all do it. Like, everything is always great. I got no problems. You know, everything is great. But God knows our hearts. And God knows what we're going through on the inside, what we're thinking, what we, and so on and so forth. But while we were yet sinners, if you think, you doubt God's love for you now, take it back before you got saved, where Paul says, look, you think God loves you less now that you're one of his kids? Then he loved you when you were a rotten sinner? Well, it's me. I don't know about you. You're probably a lot nicer than me. But, yeah, you know the idea, right? 
we got to think biblically, not emotionally. The Bible clearly teaches that God's sovereignty and his love always work together for my ultimate good. Let me read you Romans 8.28 again, this time out of the NLT. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Guys, I have to believe this by faith. Because my circumstances don't always indicate God loves me. That, that's the thing here. The devil knows it. That's why he uses circumstances. When God allows us to go through things, the devil's right there to condemn us, condemn God. Say that you're going through this terrible thing because you're a lousy Christian. God doesn't really love you. He did for a while, but he's given up on you. I have to know this in my heart that no matter what I'm going through, God's there. He was there in the storm in the Sea of Galilee when the disciples were going through that. He was in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's always with us. And he may lead us into some difficult circumstances. But though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Guys, we have to walk by faith and not by sight. The devil wants to reverse that. He wants us to walk by sight and not by faith. So, Because when we do, he can really make us a pincushion for fiery darts, right? But the devil is always trying to get me to judge the love and goodness of God by my circumstances. Now look, even these two truths, that God is sovereign, all-powerful, that God loved me with all of his heart unconditionally still wouldn't be enough to comfort me in times of great adversity if I didn't believe one more thing about God. Are you ready? That he is, all, that he is um, infinitely wise. I mean, he might be a loving God and he might be all-powerful, but he's, if he's not too slick, if he's not too sharp, let's face it, how many of us dads meant well and did something to our kids. We didn't mean to hurt them. You know, I was in the airport years ago. I mean, years ago. My, my little guys were, I only had two children at that time, my, my boys, Phil and Bob. And Bob was about four. Now, I'm sitting, sitting there ready to come home from California, went to a pastor's conference, and I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, I, I didn't pick up anything for the boys. What do I do? So I ran to a, a gift shop. Now, this wasn't the wisest thing I ever did. I didn't know what to get him. So I got him two little pocket knives. I gave it to them both. And this is a true story. Two days later, I'm sitting on my bed, putting on my socks. I got to go somewhere. And my son Bobby comes walking in. He's four. He comes walking in, and I, I tell you the truth. He had a bandage on this finger, on this finger, on this finger, and this finger. And he hands the knife back to me and says, Dad, maybe we ought to wait till I'm a little older. <laughs> I wasn't so wise on my part, okay? I didn't mean to hurt him, but I wasn't smart enough not to do something that, okay? But God's not like that. God has infinite wisdom. Now, look, 
God is so much wiser than we are. I mean, we, we accept that truth in principle. Sometimes we kind of forget it in practice. There are many things that God allows to happen in my life or in the lives of others that, honestly, I really don't understand. I look at the situation and say to myself, if I was God, I wouldn't have let that happen. If I was God, I wouldn't have done it that way. The problem is I'm not God. I can't see the big picture like God can see it. I have only limited information of the situation. But that never seems to stop me from making judgments based on my limited... Under I got a little piece of information that I'm privy to, and I want to judge the whole situation like I know it all. And I make these judgments that cause me to question the wisdom and ultimately the love and goodness of God. Peter said the problem with us is we often, we, uh, I should say, only see that which is near and not that which is afar off. In other words, we can't see the future, so we don't know what's coming down the road, but God does. And I need to realize that God is often working in my life today, preparing me for what he knows is coming tomorrow, next week, next month, and five years down the road. See, right now we're thinking, Lord, I don't understand, you know, uh, what you're doing. Uh, there was a pastor who uh, had a small church. And they needed a new building for some reason. The old one was worn out and was ready to fall down. And so they prayed and God opened this incredible door for them to have this giant church. The pastor couldn't figure that out. They had prayed. They believed God was in it. But, Lord, what do we need this big church for? Well, when they moved in, God began to work. And I forgot all the series of circumstances, but God filled that church up in a couple of years. God is working today in our lives for what is coming down the road. So stop judging the circumstances that you see right in front of you and saying, Lord, how smart is this? Like, come on. And just trust God. As long as you have prayed and you know it's his will that you continue in a certain course of action. So guys, let me say this. We have to trust in the sovereignty, the love, and the wisdom of God because like a three-legged stool, these three truths will hold me up when my circumstances try to knock me down. They will keep me going by strengthening me in adversity. They will strengthen my faith in knowing that everything is working together for good in my life, eternal good, not always temporal or earthly comfort. Where's your mind at? A lot of Christians set their mind on things on earth. And that's the whole area of blessing. Jesus said, don't do that. He said, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Paul said, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Right? We have to understand that what God is doing in my life right now, as painful as it is, well, Paul said it, 1 Corinthians 4, I believe, these light afflictions, which are but for a moment, are working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we don't look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen. For the things which are seen are temporary, the things which are unseen, they are eternal. God is working for our eternal best, not our present earthly comforts. One of my life verses, maybe it's yours too. Jeremiah 29, 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. 
plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. I know what I'm doing, God is saying. Trust me. I know I have good thoughts towards you. I don't get joy out of sending evil into your life. I want to bless your life. You got to trust me. Let me just say this in closing. This morning, guys, we find ourselves living in difficult times. Our country is divided, and many of our cities have descended into chaos and lawlessness. Inflation has gotten so high that many people aren't sure how they're going to buy groceries, pay the rent, or purchase other essential goods and services. Experts are warning that our economy is on the verge of collapse and that a third world war is becoming a very real possibility. Because of it, many in our country feel so hopeless and helpless that they have turned to alcohol and especially drugs like opioids to try to find some peace and escape. We all know these substances don't bring any peace. They often bring nothing but death. As now over 100,000 people a year, mostly young people, are dying from fentanyl and opioid overdoses. We are living at a time when because of the uncertainty of the future, many people are experiencing a considerable amount of fear, anxiety, and stress. And listen, even Christians are not immune. So what do we do? We have to take up the shield of faith every day. We must keep our eyes on God, cling to his promises, trust in his ability to care for us, first and foremost, that he loves us. Oh, but I'm such a screw-up. God loves screw-ups. That's the good news. We're all screw-ups, right? But God loves the weak, the foolish, the base, the nobodies. And he calls them oftentimes to be members of his family and his kingdom. God's heart is for those, the weak, the disadvantaged. God's for the underdog. But we have to keep our eyes on him, cling to his promises, and trust in his ability to take care of us and bring us through whatever storm in our lives we're going through. And along with that, all the stress and anxiety that comes with it. Isaiah 26, 3, you don't have to turn to it, we're out of time. You will keep him or you will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. That's the key. Folks, that's the, that's the secret. The secret to experiencing peace, the peace of God, is that you have to keep your thoughts, your mind fixed on God, which means your faith in him and his promises has to be something that Guard your hearts and minds. Guard you because you trust in him to have abs- and you have absolute confidence in his strength, his love, his wisdom toward you. Philippians 4, verses 6 to 7, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Let me just say one more thing. And this may not minister to you, especially if you tend to be on the controlling side. I belong to that group. There's a lot of joy when you learn to let go and just trust God. As Paul put it, faith is an incredible shield that will keep us protected from the devil's fiery missiles of doubt and despair. 
and in the process bring joy into our hearts, the joy of faith, the joy of trusting in God each and every day because we know he's in control. It's very liberating, especially if you tend to be a controlling person. It's very liberating to be able to say, God, I am done trying to control things. I can't anyways. It just brings stress and anxiety to my life. Lord, i got to rest in you. I'm going to turn it all over to you. I'm just going to rest in you, trust you. What am I worried about? You're on the throne. You're in control. And that faith will bring you a lot of joy because you trust God. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. We ask you, Lord, to keep blessing these studies in your word in this current series, that we may walk in joy, Lord, in every area you mention in the book of Philippians. We thank you. We ask you to go before us this week. Give us grace to apply this teaching into our lives where we keep our eyes on you. Just trust that you are in control. We just thank you, Lord. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.